Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Economics Happy Hour. My name's Matt. And I'm Jadrian. Uh, Jadrian, what uh, what are you drinking this okay. afternoon, this evening? Another Virginia beer. I, I'm really curious how long I can make this last. This is this uh, is this is pretty fantastic. We've been doing a really good job. So my local Kroger has a very good six-pack selection. Uh, it's a decent-sized case. There's usually a Virginia beer in there that I have uh, not had. So for those of you on YouTube, if I can get that to focus, almost focused. Uh, it is called an Ardent IPA, and it is out of, if I rotate this enough, Richmond, Virginia. So I'm going nice. to Richmond. I do not think I've had that, and I love IPAs. I am having... I have to pause a moment to figure out how to pronounce this. Uh, I'm going to crack it while you're doing it. Oh, the carabiner. Carabiner. Yeah, it's not a carabiner. It's a carabiner. (laughs) Thankfully, I was going to go carabiner and not carabiner. uh, Hazy IPA from New Trail, which is in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We'll see if this pops up on the audio later. Uh, I don't know if that that will or if the noise canceling will will cancel that out. Go ahead and pour this into the New Trail Brewery is a, a a great brewery. Um, however, my one caveat, I'll tell you about my friend, Steve. I don't know if you've ever met him. He's a big neutral fan. Um, they may, they're They have great beers. They make way too many IPAs. Way, Impossible. No, Matt. No, like literally every, like half of their beers, I think are, are IPA. They have great beers, but I cannot tell the difference between most of their IPAs. So my friend Steve lives in State College. His uh, mom uh, lived up at, near Williamsburg or Williamsport, um, and he had checked in like a hundred beers from this from the Neutral Brewery. I once looked it up. Of like, he got a Century Club just off the brewery. That's I'm, really I'm, cool. I'm pulling it up on the Untapped because um, I want you to. I want. I need to like show you just how many beers they have. So on Untapped, they have 280 beers listed. Uh, if I scroll down under IPAs, just IPA American, they have 34 different beers. Under Imperial, Double New England, or Hazy IPAs, they have 50. They have 17 milkshake IPAs, 59 New England slash Hazy IPAs, 11 triple IPA. That's too many IPAs. <laughs> and then they have I, all I, the other. No, Matt, that's too many. It's not that's, too many. Not that's too, too many. many IPAs. I've had. I've had. I think I've had something like four or five hundred different IPA brands, and I still love trying new ones. So uh, it's I, I will have to disagree with you on that one. But so uh, before I pour my beer, I want to I want to share my pint glass with you. So I told you uh, previously that uh, I collect pint glasses from different places. So today's pint glass uh, is from the Von Trapp Brewing Company wow. in Stowe, Vermont. Uh, so oh, okay. Von- I thought it was going to be like Austria or something. No, but one of the Von Trapp kids. I don't know if you ever knew this. One of the Von Trapp Actually, no, I think it's Maria. I actually think Maria moved to Vermont after like all the stuff was over. Um, And so they have like a, because they, wherever, you know, Stowe, Vermont is, um, it it reminded them of uh, the Swiss Alps. Like, right, it's a ski resort, wooded pine area. So you can stay at like Maria's cottage and and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's the same Von Trapp family uh, when they moved from, I guess, Austria, right? I believe it was Austria. I, I know yeah. I'm a, I'm know it's the sound of music. Yes, I believe it's, it's Austria. I think it's Austria. Um, that's about the extent of my. I let my subscription to the, the Von Trapp Daily lapse, so I okay. don't. I, I haven't kept up. Mine is a, simply in a Susquehanna tumbler. <laughs> so, 
but we'll, we'll see if Susquehanna gets mad about that. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, we, we serve beer on campus. If you're over 21 to, oh, uh, you know, it's yeah. one of those responsible things. You have to wear a bracelet and mm-hmm. only one per hour and all of that, but you know, responsible drinking is something. You know, I, I have, uh, I have watched the Susquehanna baseball team and drink a beer at the same time. Uh, so I didn't actually get to tell you this story from when I went down to Charlotte a weeks ago. Uh, yeah. I, think I texted you a picture of it. Yep. So on my trip down, there's, uh, I think it's called Canapolis. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Canapolis, uh, North Carolina has a minor league baseball team. And so I was driving down to Charlotte and I needed to check in that stadium. And so I was going to just take a picture of the outside and say, here's a stadium. And I pull up and they're playing baseball inside and I go, that's super cool. Gates are wide open. And I was like, great. I'll have a baseball picture. Um, apparently there was like a division three baseball tournament that had like nine teams playing nonstop for like four or five days. And the game I happened to walk in on was Susquehanna playing some other team. I don't remember who that's, it was. That's really cool. It was that's so wild. Cool. Yeah. Um, and the concession stand was serving beer. So I got to have a beer randomly in the middle of the day watching Susquehanna baseball. So they don't, they don't serve beer at most of the sporting <laughs> okay. events. I go to, I don't go to. So. so today's episode, we're trying something a little different. Uh, Jadrian is going to ask a question and we're going to go through the responses and see where it leads us. So yeah, we're going we're to try something different in previous episodes, a little bit different. Yeah. In previous episodes, we always came in with a topic. And so we figured this was a good chance to break from our, uh, our pattern. So again, if you ever have topics, please give us topics. We would love to talk about the things you want to hear about. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, Matt and I just talk for like an hour about whatever we want. So if you give us topic ideas, it helps us stay on topic. So today, Matt, I have a very uh, interesting question for you that what I want to know from you, you have hinted at it regularly in previous episodes but i'm really curious what is your absolute favorite topic to teach and i mean that in the sense that like the day before the class that you're going to teach it you are thinking about how you're going to teach it you are excited it's the one that you are most excited like i cannot wait to get in the classroom and tell them about what topic so there's first, I'm not a hundred percent that this answer would be the same as a week from now. So I got a heads up a little <laughs> bit earlier today that this was coming and, but I haven't told Jadrian yet. There are some topics in the upper level class in game theory that are are pretty fun. Like bargaining and negotiation to me is like putting the models on that. It's really mm-hmm. just fascinating and doing mixed strategy Nash equilibrium. I always think is a lot of fun. You know, students will see it at first and think they'll never get it. And then they all get it. But in a principles class, the first thing that came to mind is the section on, and I titled the section poverty, inequality, and discrimination. Mm. And I think that's the section that as of now, I would say is the most exciting for me to teach. What part of, are you teaching that in the beginning of the course? Is that like at the end of the course? Like wh- where does it kind of probably three fourths of the way in, okay. right? You go through and we have four credit principles classes, which Ooh. gives a little bit of a degree of flexibility. It's very okay. nice. So now we've gone through a lot of stuff. It might even be in the last 15% of the class, right? You've mm-hmm. gone through all of the demand and supply and opportunity cost and markets and restrictions on markets and competitive versus monopolistic, all of that stuff. And then at the a, end... Wait, hold on. I have a question. Is this a four-credit micro course or four-credit combination? Four-credit. We have a four-credit micro and a four-credit wow. micro. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. It gives you it gives you some extra flexibility to work yeah. in a day on sports economics. That's that's on. really cool. 
So actually, we should probably say something real quick because this is like real nerdy between academics. Sure. Uh, those of you who don't know the difference between a four credit and a three credit course, that is a huge difference. Um, so generally speaking, this is not always true, but it's generally true. A three credit course would meet for three hours a week over like a 15 week period. Yeah. And, uh, and really technically three hour class will meet for two and a half or three yeah, 50 minute yeah. lectures probably. Yeah. So, but like a four credit course, like is, is getting like a, is really getting like a whole extra day yep, every yep. week uh, to teach. Which so they meet, just, we, it's 65 yeah. minutes instead of 50. For three times a week. Plus, three times a week, 65 <sighs> instead of 50. Or if you do it two times a week, it's an hour and 35 or an hour and 40 instead of an hour and 15. Okay. So it's an That's extra, really cool. it's an extra 50 minutes. So, so it, it does allow you to dive in. And yeah, I, yeah. we did an, an analysis recently. It was about 80% of schools in the, out of the 50 to 60 we looked at were three credit classes mm -hmm. and 20% were four credits. So but that's so cool. You get to, you actually get to cover like, yeah. I don't want to yeah. say real stuff, but like, I mean, I, I am, uh, I'm booking it through my three credit course. So I, for me, I have 17 lessons. It's not a lesson is not exactly a chapter. So like there's one chapter that in my opinion is so big, I make it three lessons, but generally like on a 15 week course, um, you know, you, you don't get to do a lot during the first week. You don't get to do that much in the last week. Correct. You might be able to get 12, 13 chapters in there. Um, and so like, I, I feel like I'm covering, this is going to sound dumb. I feel like I'm really just covering the principles in my principles yeah. course. Um, but the fun part of economics is not the principles. It's you get the principles. Okay, cool. Now here's a, here's, then, then apply here's how you can yep. use it. Like the applications yep. are the cool part. Yep. So, so, so part of what I love about this is that I've been thinking about economics for a while mm -hmm. and there's so many things with these topics that just go in different directions than what anybody has thought of. So poverty, um, I mean, a simple question is how do you define poverty? Mm -hmm. How does the U S define poverty? And it's way more complicated than you yes. expect. I, yeah. Oh, so Matt, I teach this in my labor course. So I teach an up, I used to teach yeah. an upper level labor course. And when we got to the chapter on, um, uh, income programs, right? Like how do we help? How do we give money to people who live in poverty? One of the, the clicker question I used to ask them is what level of income qualifies an a single person with a kid, like a single parent um, to qualify below the federal poverty level. And you could just, and you know, a portion of it is the students, right? And I think your students are probably very similar. Most of them are not even close to the poverty line. Um, most college students are not. And so like for them, they have no idea like how low it actually is. And then I've, I always feel like, so I'm, I'm pulling it up uh, now as we talk. I'm, I'm assuming that you were doing the same thing. I'm just, no, I'm a couple of different things here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I would always present this to them. I'm like, you know, what do you, what do you think it takes to live in poverty uh, in the United States? If you were a single parent and like the answers are all over the board, oh, of course, uh, all over the place. And so I, I just pulled it up now for our conversation. So effective 2023 for a single a, parents, a single parent. So two people in the household, okay. yep. $19,720. I had looked it up recently for a family of four, and I think it was in the very low thirties. It it's exactly 30,000. Okay. Um, and, and so uh, like, I would always bring that up to them. I said, you know, if you had a kid, if it was you and just your kid, 
if you made twenty thousand dollars, you would not be in. You would not be considered living in poverty. Yeah, yeah. And like their eyes, you could just see their eyes like blow up. They're like, "How do you raise a kid on that much money? Yeah. Like my rent for the year is twenty thousand dollars." Yeah. So there's. I mean, I think there's a bunch of different things. There's one. It's it's kind of mind blowing to a lot of people that literally there's somebody could make five dollars more and they'll be considered poor or not poor. Mm-hmm. And you take a step back and of course we have to have a cutoff. Like yeah. there has to be some There's... level and you're either you're counted as poor or not poor. Uh, another interesting question is just what the value is, which we talked yeah. about. Another interesting question is what does the government count when it's determining how many people are poor or not? Mm-hmm. And the government will count any cash transfers as income. Mm-hmm. And so if you are just if you are not working, but you receive $30,000 in cash transfers, you are not poor because you've received cash from the government. You are not poor. If the government gives you $30,000 in housing assistance, um, I'm actually not 100% whether um, food stamps count towards as, as near cash. I don't think I they don't, do. I don't know, but unemployment insurance does count. Unemployment would, but energy assistance, mm-hmm. energy assistance, housing assistance, a number of different assistance programs don't count. And actually, in the bottom quintile, the average household gets more of the non-income assistance than the income assistance, but it doesn't count. And so how you define poverty, do you find it officially or do you find it with these extra levels that are provided is an interesting question as well. The other interesting question, people will say, oh, you know, too many people, we need to raise the minimum wage to get people out of poverty. And my first reaction is like, you're no, that's wrong. Because if you have two adult workers working full time at minimum wage, even in Pennsylvania, they're over $30,000 a year income. They're not poor. Mm-hmm. Now you could say they're, they're struggling. And of course, I'm going to agree, but it's such, it's a argument about the minimum wage made over and over and over. Yeah. That's just almost blatantly wrong. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce back and forth with the single parent one. If you were a single parent, you would need to make $9.61 an hour in order to go above the poverty line, which $10 an hour is not that unreasonable in most places. If you make $10 an hour and you worked a full-time job all year long, you, the government does not consider you poor, even if you have a kid. Yeah. yeah. Which to it, me is like, no, no, and I, and I agree. I mean, I, 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 I would agree the person isn't, you know. We, right. They need, they you're going to spend all, but... you're going to spend all that $20,000 on daycare so that you can go work at your $10 an hour job. That's how much so daycare is going to cost a, you. It's a fascinating, I yeah. mean, it, there are so many fascinating aspects about mm-hmm. poverty, but the, and then there's a question that's often not covered is like how much money in governmental transfers, either cash or non-cash does the bottom quintile of income earners receive? Mm-hmm. And like, it's a pretty fair question. We hear all the time that the U.S. social safety net is not what it is in other countries. And I don't think that's right. I mean, there certainly there could be some that are higher, but we're not counting the non-cash transfers. First of all, if you're looking at incomes relative to the median, okay, it may not be as high. We have more income inequality in mm-hmm. the U.S. But there's the bottom quintile. I saw numbers where it's 15,000 in government cash transfers on average for the bottom quintile, and then another 30 in non-cash transfers. And those aren't counted as income. I mean, that's 45,000 total that's provided. Now, as economists, we would, of course, argue, why isn't it all cash? Because if you're paying non-cash, it's 
I mean, at the very best, it's as good as cash. I'm glad. I'm really glad you picked this topic. So I do not cover this in my principles class at all. But I actually think if I, if you ask me on the spot, I'm not sure if I could answer this. But I can tell you this topic is my absolute favorite one to talk about in labor economics. Yeah. I have a field day with how wild our government assistance programs are. I spend almost a full day, I think, or at least half a day talking about the absurdity of the food stamp program uh, because of what you, ex- what you said exactly right there. Yeah. This idea that we're, you know, you're giving, you're giving people m- vouchers for food, except you're giving them vouchers for some food and not other food. Uh, and like, I would present this uh, like as a, like the very simple example of, um, you know, if you, if you were, if you're on I'm trying to think of what the official title is, it's not actually food stamps anymore. Um, EBT. EBT. Uh, no, that's the card, right? It's a, uh, okay. Oh man, I should know the name of it. Um, we'll put it in the description for those. So, <laughs> so thankfully, we're we're doing well enough where neither of us are. Yeah, right. right. Uh, Snap. It's the Snap program. You're right. It's uh, Snap. Snap. So I would bring this up and I said, look, if you qualify for Snap and you get funding, let's say you get a hundred dollars a week from Snap benefits, I go, if you go to Wegmans and you're trying to feed your family, uh, you want to buy dinner that night, you can buy a pizza that has not been cooked. That counts, but if Wegmans cooks that pizza for you. You cannot buy that pizza under snap. It does not count. Yeah. yeah. And you see their eyes just like they like pause for a second. And I go, you can go to Wegmans and buy bread, lettuce, tomato, meat, and cheese counts as snap. If you go over to the prepared food section and Wegmans has put that sandwich together for you, you cannot purchase that sandwich. And like their eyes just like pop out and they're like, but wait, what? Like the the it's not frozen right but it's like that prepared fresh pizza they're like it's the exact same pizza it's not the and i'm like yeah snap will not allow you to purchase prepared food and like you can like you can see the stuff clicking and i'm like yeah it's dumb like it's, it's yeah i mean it's pizza. it's dumb but like uh, otherwise you're gonna have this case where i mean you can't let them go to you know, we've talked about Marzoni. Right. But that's the thing, right? You need thresholds, right? You got to have there some cutoff has to be some threshold. Which is interesting. And, and um, you know, the way, the way I always phrase it, right, is like you're you're forcing an individual, right? It's, you know, there's, I think there's a, I do believe there's a difference in restaurants versus grocery stores. Um, you know, but somebody who is, if you are actually a, a working family who is qualifying for SNAP, like that extra hour that you can spend with a pizza that's already been made versus a pizza that you have to bake, um, well, like I, those sorts of things. I, I like cook it, pizza a lot, and trust me, there's not that much to. There's throw not, no, but oven. like, it's. I think if you're buying it from a grocery store, like, fine. Uh, but then I don't know how. Again, like this might not be different. I don't know if you and Amanda were different before. Um, have you ever seen the WIC guidelines, the Women and Inf- Women, Infant, and Children program, the subset of SNAP? I have not. If you think SNAP stuff is wild. Um, so there's a secondary program that is designed for mothers of young children uh, known as WIC. Uh, that actually has, it's, it's the same idea. So it's trying to get you bread, milk, cheese, like stuff for kids. That is even more restrictive to where you can only buy um, like certain types of bread from the grocery store uh, or certain types of cheese. Like you can, I'm trying to like find it real yeah. fast. Like you can only buy Swiss or cheddar in a block. You can't buy shredded Parmesan. Like it's yeah, like yeah. it's like that sort of restrictive. And, and I mean, just I, like, I it's a, just a number of my rel- I number of my relatives um, growing up were 
were poor and they, you know, so I remember having government cheese when I went up there, right? Like they would literally provide the cheese. We actually had an economist come to Susquehanna. Uh, Jeffrey Dorfman is Mm -hmm. his name, University of of Georgia. Really, really great guy, nice guy. Came to campus and gave a really great presentation. He has done analysis on these thresholds. and, And part of the problem with the way our government's set up on this is you had you could have an individual, I don't know if it's a single mother or you know what what individual he was looking at, but he was looking at a specific case. And once the person hit, like went up from 31,000 to 31,500, they would not be as well off once you count their income and their uh, ex- and their government benefits until they made $72,000 in a year. So it gave, there's kind of perverse incentives where there's not the incentive to try to get this promotion yeah. to try to do better. And as we know, like, Working hard, getting the promotion is the key to learning new skills and then getting another promotion and moving up. And I mean, it's a big number to think through where then logically you have a number of people who are like, well, no, I should just stay working part time or working in these low wage jobs. And then, of course, though, individuals would get stuck in those because so many of these programs have income thresholds and they're all not coordinating with each other. <laughs> and so because they're all not coordinating with each other, you you have it, you've created an, an incentive for individuals really to try not to earn as much money because it's in their family's best interest. And it's it's I mean, so that's poverty. I mean, we haven't even hit the other two, mm-hmm. but there are so many fascinating <laughs> yeah. things with poverty. Although I think the way we count income really hits towards income inequality as mm-hmm. well. Um the idea of how unequal our incomes really, if we're not counting as, if we're saying incomes are wildly unequal, the government's giving a lot of assistance to the bottom 20% that's not counted there. Consumption is way more equal than what we're saying. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of how much does inequality really matter? Should it be inequality versus poverty? And that's a normative question. And different, you know, I'll say, look, different people in this room should have different answers to this. But it's a it's a question and coming out of this, if there's anything, I want you to think of inequality as different from poverty. Mm-hmm. Those are very different things. And how you think about those, you know, really should be different. My, and so that, yeah. you know, inequality is kind of a fun one to think about as well. My old labor class had an inequality chapter that I got to at the very end of the semester and I loved teaching it. And then I like completely revamped my course. And like, that was one of the ones that got cut. Um, I really enjoy teaching it from kind of what you said there, right? This idea, like if you want to improve inequality, there's all sorts of things you can do. You you can, right? You can cut down the top part of the distribution. You can pull up the bottom part of the distribution. You can move everyone. Yep. Um, and there's so many different things. And especially when you look at how inequality has changed over time, where that has come from is very different. Um, and then like government responses are very different of what you're trying to do. But I, I haven't gotten to teach that in a long time. Um, no, well, so that's, honestly, so that's, I haven't taught micro yeah. in five years or six okay. years now. So it's been a while since I've yeah. taught that as well. Um, so we'll save my favorite one for a future episode. Uh, yeah, so you yeah. said it's it's poverty, poverty inequality, inequality, and discrimination. Yeah, a, a future episode, I'm okay. going to ask your favorite topic. Okay. So I think discrimination is um, a fun one. And I always preface, and the students always think it's weird. I'm like, I think this is so much fun to cover these yeah. topics. Not that the things themselves are fun, but to talk about thinking it. Yeah. through the economics on this is fun. 
um, with discrimination, first of all, it's the economic case. It's a little bit of the cost of discrimination model that Becker talked about. Mm -hmm. And the idea of you could have somebody who is uh, who is prejudiced against a certain group, who dislikes a certain group. Um, but it doesn't mean they'll discriminate against them. Or if they do, they're actually paying a cost for discrimination. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a fascinating idea. So if you had, I mean, I simplify, I'll say, okay, let's say you have people with uh, brown hair and blue hair, right? And let's say they're both equally productive, but the market says that the blue haired people are being paid 30% less. What should any business do? Of course, every student intuitively would, well, the shyer, the cheaper person, they're just as productive. Yeah. Okay, well, if they do that, then what happens to our demand and supply charts? And of course, the demand pushes up. And that would happen until it's equalized um, in the absence of some other things that we talk about. So the, the first thing is that free markets make it really costly to discriminate and really, well, they eradicate discrimination. That's, that's saying a little bit much, mm -hmm. but there's certainly a lot of pressure to make different wages for different work yeah. really, really small. Because otherwise, you know, quite frankly, if, if somebody thinks that equal wage from the same work, which is the, the phrase that's said a lot, if you really think it's 80 cents on the dollar, I mean, you could be really dumb and go be a millionaire. Just start mm -hmm. any company and, you know, you're saying they're making 80 cents on the dollar. Just hire the cheaper group and you're going to be able yeah. to charge less and you will be a millionaire. So um, I do get to talk about discrimination a little bit in my principles course. Uh, I talk about it in my, I have a labor chapter. Um that I teach actually in the beginning of the course, right after the demand chapter. So I teach demand and supply. And then the very next chapter, I teach labor economics. So I jump like way over, but I basically say like, look, here's a demand curve for people rather than a demand curve for hot dogs. Here's a supply curve of people. Yep. Um, but I do talk about a discrimination a little bit in that section, but I think my favorite part in, in the principles class is not necessarily talking about like the, right, the idea of competitive markets kind of fixing it or moving it away from kind of with the gaps we see is so we go through of like, why do we see gaps, right? So we talk about differences in education, compensating differentials. Yep, yep, yep. We do discrimination. And I always save it for the end. I go, it's easy to pick this one. And I go, but I saved it for the end on purpose. But I really like teaching it because I like talking about how we measure discrimination because I feel like the students always find that so incredibly fascinating. Um, so economists like to measure discrimination using resume studies. Um, so a resume study is basically you take two identical resumes, like literally identical resumes. Uh, and then, you know, if you're if you're measuring gender discrimination, uh, you name one person, Samantha, and you name one person, Sam. Sure. Uh, sure. If you're measuring if you're doing uh, racial discrimination, you name one person, James. Uh, and then I always tell them in class and I go, or you name the other person, Jadrian. And so I always say, like, you guys didn't think I was white when you signed up for this class. I go, you saw my name. And I go, a little part of you said that guy might be black. Uh, and then you looked it up and you found out that that wasn't true. Um, but I talk about how, like, that little feeling of like, ooh, I think this person is like this, um, that that's how you can actually measure those sorts of things like in real life. They find it incredibly fascinating. Sure. Um, that that happens. And I used to talk about it in my labor course and I would have students who would walk up and they go, should I change my name on my resume? And I'm always like, listen, like, I'm going to give you two answers. I go, one, if you are concerned about it, sure. If it doesn't like, or if it, like, if you really are worried about it, like, and, and it doesn't bother you that you might not get hired, like, yeah, go ahead and change your name. I go, the second thing is 
would you want to work for a company that doesn't want to hire you because you're a woman? Uh, so it was always my students. Like I would have a student named Samantha and she'd come up and say, should I change my name to Sam on my resume? And I was like, do you care more about a job or where your job is at? Um, and I go, but at the same time, I go, just cause you change your name. Like there's other things on your resume. You're, you're president of the women in economics club. <laughs> They're going to be able to guess, uh, even if you change it to Sam, uh, that something's not connecting there. But like my students find it fascinating of just um, like, how do we actually conduct statistical testing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's fun to talk about. No, I, and it's it's there and it, it's not to minimize. I mean, like there's there's biases, right? Mm-hmm. And we should be trying to think through what they are and to mm-hmm. try to counteract them. And I, I, I think that's important. And, and there is, I mean, different studies have had different gaps, but some yeah. of the, the ones that are talking about 20%, I mean, they're just, yeah. They're, they're ridiculous, but, and I always try to talk to them, but yeah, I try to talk about like discrimination of like education. I go, you could be just as qualified as somebody from Harvard. And I was like, but the problem is like Harvard sends a signal that something else is happening. So I kind of, I lead it into this. I I briefly talk about signaling and stuff like that. Yeah. And where, I mean, where can you have it? Right. I mean, you could have biases that lead to some discrimination, uh, starting offer. I mean, you hear the case where if, if somebody, if, um, you know, the classic cases, uh, women versus men, women aren't willing to negotiate over a mm-hmm. first offer. And if the, then that allows you to get higher wages later on, right. That, that can lead through. Um, but then other cases, uh, statistical discrimination, you know, that, okay, somebody's not judging you for you. They're judging based on a group. And the off the example I ask is, okay, what group do you suppose is, has the single highest car insurance rates? And yeah, it's, um, 16 to 18 year old young men right um and they could look and they could think you're the nicest human in the world but it doesn't matter they're charging you a lot because (laughs) these statistics say something about how likely you are to be in an accident so so there could be discrimination based on statistics and then the fourth one is that customers discriminate i love yeah that so when i taught labor i love customer discrimination yeah this is again this is that weird part where i think economists will say things like i i realize what i just said I'm like, I love customer discrimination. No, no. you love teaching it. You don't love, love that it happens, it. right? You love the um, bit. Yeah, that you know, that's the one that's fascinating, right? So the idea of customer discrimination for those listening, um, it's that your customers are willing to pay a premium for you doing whatever. You, I always like to say, doing whatever you're doing, um, right? Like it's when we think about like women-owned businesses, you might pay more because yeah. it's a woman-owned business, or you might pay more because you're a local baker doesn't bake cakes for one group of people versus another. Yeah. Like I was, people I was in the South me, might have paid more if the business is going to discriminate against against black people. Right. I mean there yeah. there certainly there, there's people who will pay for it. Yeah. And I mean and then there's you know you could have you know if you're at a college or university you could have students who say, I want some I'd like to see faculty, some faculty members who look like me here. Yeah. Right. I mean that's that mm-hmm. would be the that's customers discriminating. Um yeah. And so it's it's a it's all fascinating topics. I mean, poverty, inequality, discrimination. It's kind of depressing when you think of the topics, but in terms of teaching it, I've always loved teaching it. So, so that I, was that was actually my job. Now that I actually I don't know if I told you this, my, it was my job market paper. It was customer discrimination in Major League Soccer. Yeah. So I, I don't know that. Yeah, I guess now that you say that, I think I yeah. do remember seeing it. But. I, I, my goal was to figure out um, essentially in U.S. professional soccer. Are people willing to pay more for players from a particular country? Hmm. Um, and is there a premium on getting like a German on your team versus uh, somebody from like Czechoslovakia? And so like there's a really great quote is um, it, it's not a sports really quote. It's a really great quote. I don't remember the book, uh, but it essentially said you're willing to pay more 
to go to a French restaurant if the cook is French versus a chef that is from any other nationality. Um, you you want sh- a French chef cooking you French food. Uh, you want Japanese people making your sushi. Like you're willing to pay more for that sort of uh, consumption. And yeah, outside yeah. of a la- outside of a labor market, we say, yeah, that makes sense. Like we're it, like the book talked a lot. It was really neat. Like that chapter was we have these beliefs in some areas where people generally will go, yeah, that makes sense. That's fine. And then as soon as you do that in any other market, it makes people uncomfortable. They're like, wait, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. No, it's uh, yeah. Um, and I can think of examples of thinking through. Yeah, the restaurants makes total sense. Restaurant. So I think about it whenever I when I applied when I was on the job market, I applied to work at Baylor and Baylor required a statement of faith, uh, which was not the easiest thing to write for me. Um, and I was just like, this is wild. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess like people who like the students might care about, you know, their faculty's religion and they only want to yeah. learn from different people uh, or certain people. Yeah, um, but it's, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting experience given that I was like, that was my yeah. dissertation. Uh, I did not get an interview from Baylor. So uh, thanks, Baylor. So, so you got to revise that <laughs> statement. So. Well, no, thanks for asking. So at a future episode, I will ask you and you can be ready. Okay, that'll give me, that gives me plenty answer, of time to think answer. about my favorite topic. Any, any pop culture references Ooh. you want to bring up for Ooh. today? Yeah, actually, so um, I think I do. I think I have a pop culture reference. Um, this is actually, so I make this joke every single year. This, I think you probably are the exact same way. Like, I think all professors are lame like this. We have one joke that we tell every <laughs> every six months. And we, we act like it's the first time we've ever told the joke. Um, so I have a video clip related to discrimination. Uh, it actually comes from a BuzzFeed article. Um, so and th- that's actually the joke um, is I have a little video clip and I'm like, this is the only time I can show you a BuzzFeed article or a buzz, a video from BuzzFeed. And it's going to be educational. Um, it says they are interviewing a man about uh, his name is Jose. And it's talking about re- it's basically like a, a resume study. He talks about how he applies for all these jobs. He can't get interviews because he keeps putting his name as Jose. Uh, and then he talks about he's like, all I did was I changed my name from Jose to Joe. And so I went from Jose Zamora to Joe Zamora. And he's like, within days, I got I got emails. Can you come in for an interview? And so it's it actually like matches up with that story of resume studies of like, are people responding to your name on a resume? So I'll put that in the, like the pop culture-ish yeah, space. Yeah. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, you don't see those things from BuzzFeed. And like, those are the no. things that like, it's a cool opportunity to say like, hey, look, you know, you're learning economics and it's not just economics of like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post, like, economics is everywhere it's even economics in your buzzfeed articles um so i like that one so i'm gonna link that one later so with the theme of this i had to go to the site to find which one i wanted but um i know on the economics of star wars which i did uh, which i've um ben smith at uno and then bailey hackenberry student who's graduated helped and then we're actually bringing brian o'rourke on to okay. this because he has watched a whole lot and basically said i have all of these clips that i want to add to the site <laughs> Um, it sounds like but, Brian work. but in uh, Mandalorian, um, you know, Mando is, is willing to pay more to avoid driving with a droid, like to have a droid driver, Mando's discriminating against droids mm-hmm. and wants a human. And that, that clip, it will put the clip in the description, but I mean, it's, it's classic discrimination, right? Yeah. I mean, in this case it's humans versus droids, but it's a case of discrimination and 
Mando's willing to actually, he, in this very much in the idea of Gary Becker's, right, you're paying a mm-hmm. price to discriminate. Mando's paying a significant price, if you watch the clip, to discriminate yeah. against the droid in this example. So something for, something that kind of ties in with discrimination. So. I like it. That's a good one. Well, thank you uh, to, again to everybody for tuning in. If you have questions for us, let us know. Um, and really appreciate the comments, the questions, the suggestions. Got an email yesterday about um from a reviewer from we don't know when this will come out so i don't want to embarrass <laughs> us by saying what episode it was but a previous uh, episode <laughs> but a previous episode saying hey related to this previous episode and i gotta say to uh it was, it, i believe it was uh, brian who did this and it was not brian o'rourke uh thank you brian you will know how long it took from when we recorded <laughs> this to when it came out but uh but love seeing stuff like that so thank you to everybody for tuning in uh please Comment, share with friends, suggest topics, all of that stuff. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate this IPA. It was very delicious. So uh, thank you. IPAs are always delicious, Jason. Thank you, Ardent Brewery, for your delicious IPA. Thank you to uh, New Trail for that one. (laughs) For one of your many dozens of IPAs. (laughs) Cheers, Jadrian. Cheers. Bye, Matt.